Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 581 with Michael Watkins. We had him way back in episode 29 at the very beginning. He's back with some pro tips on how to empower teams in the midst of difficult times with some coach-like conversations. So you'll learn, one, the question all leaders must ask during a crisis. Two, why you don't need to solve problems to be a value. And three, the best thing to do when conversations get emotional. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, Visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep581 or tap and expand the show notes, show description, episode notes, episode description, whatever your podcast app player happens to call it. But some apps just don't have tappable links, which is why we have all the goodies nicely displayed over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep581. Now here's Michael's story. Michael Watkins is the co-founder of Genesis Advisors, a global leadership development consultancy based in Boston, Massachusetts, specializing in transition acceleration for leaders, teams, and organizations, where he coaches C-level executives of global organizations. He is the professor of leadership and organizational change at the IMD Business School. He has spent the last two decades working with executives, both corporate and public, as they craft their legacies as leaders and he has been ranked among the leading management thinkers globally by Thinkers 50 in 2019. Big thanks to Michael for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra sipc for more information visit acorns.com here is Michael. Michael, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's great to be back, Pete. Well, it's great to have you, boy. I think it's been about four years. <laughs> you were episode 29 back in the day. Uh, what have you been up to in four years? Well, it's been interesting, right? So still at IMD, still doing a lot of work on leadership transitions, still running the consulting company, coaching a lot of CEOs these days, which is absolutely fascinating because, of course, going into a new job right now is just so different than it was before. Writing some stuff on onboarding people remotely, but probably the most interesting work has been around the crisis, right? And, and how people are responding to it, how companies are responding to it. That's really been the most interesting stuff in the last sort of two, three months. Well, yes. And, and, and tell us, uh, what have you discovered in your observations and your research in terms of what's new, what's different, how is work a different ballgame? So there's a few different dimensions to that, Pete, and maybe we can unpeel them a little bit, right? The starting point for me getting really interested in this work was I was sitting in with an executive team and it was a senior C-level executive I was uh, coaching and she had her team together to sort of talk about the crisis and how things were doing and doing a little bit of a check-in. 
And they were all kind of expressing their gratitude for like, you know, hey, look, this hasn't been so bad for us, really. But when we look at our people and we look at a level down below that, there's a really different level of magnitude of impact on lots of people, right? And one of the, the leaders in the room said, we need to understand as a leadership team that we're in the same storm, but we're in very different boats. And that was, I think, a very interesting phrase. He knew it wasn't an original phrase, and I tried to track it down. But th that got me thinking a lot about just how different the impact Pete is on people by age, by stage, by industry. So I started doing a little bit of writing about that. We also did a pretty big survey through IMD looking at some of the impacts. And so a survey of six or 700 leaders across the globe looking at how they were being impacted. And one sort of related finding that was really interesting was that it's the middle tier of leadership that's really being hit the most by this. The junior people are doing reasonably okay. The senior people are doing reasonably okay. Our theory about this basically is, look, you, you know, you're part of a two-career family. People you know are losing their jobs. You're trying to manage the kids at home. So that was kind of an interesting piece of research and, and writing, just trying to help leaders think about what's the impact on their people, right? And begin to coach those people in, in a reasonable way. And, and so when you say hit hardest, is this just like on the questionnaire and just says, hey, I am experiencing a great difficulty. And we see like those responses are kind of the strongest there or, or, or what do we mean by hit hardest precisely? So, so the way we framed the question was, to what extent is the crisis creating negative impacts for you at work and at home? All right. And so what we saw that was really interesting was the biggest impacts for work, the work side were senior, then middle, then lower level. But the biggest impacts on the home front were the lowest on the senior, because often their kids are gone, they're pretty well off, somewhat higher at the bottom, but it was the middle tier that was really suffering at home. And that, that's, I think, not surprising, right, in some ways, once we thought about it, given the, the pressures that you're facing if you're dual career kids trying to manage some of what's going on right now. Sure thing. And, and so then you've built out this this whole COVID-19 stress index. And what kind of insights can we glean from that in terms of, let's say we are in the middle. It's like, hey, we've learned it sucks to be you. Okay, well, that's one insight. Uh, what else do we got? <laughs> no, it really sucks to be you. Let's, let's be clear here, right? So look, I, th I think the biggest insight here was that senior leaders needed to understand, first of all, at a much deeper level than typically they do what's going on with their people. And they need to be willing to coach those people in a way that they probably have never coached them before. And they need to get over the terror of opening up that box of kind of what's going on with you really, Pete, right? Like what's really going on here for you? Because normally most leaders in normal times, they don't open that box up very often, right? And, and they don't dig into sort of where, where are you energetically? right? Where are you in terms of what's going on with you right now? How much capacity do you have to really deal with more, right? The context for this, by the way, was that the team was trying to decide how hard to push on a transformation. And they're like, yeah, you know, we got everything under control. We did this, we did that. We reacted beautifully to the crisis. We're feeling great about things. So hoo-ha, right? You know, the, this is something else we could talk about, Pete. The crisis is actually accelerating a lot of transformation, right, in ways of working and digital, you know, we can talk about that a little bit. So let's just drive, right? And there was kind of like a, well, wait a minute, right? Let's take stock of how much energy our people really have 
and try to understand and factor that into our thinking about how rapidly we're going to try and push this whole process forward. Well, there's so many fun directions we go in. I want to talk about that notion of, of how are you doing really is not something that people go into very often in terms of sort of a, a work context. So I, I, want to, I want to know all about that in terms of to what extent should we? You know, hey, work is at work, at home is home, you know, and uh, people need personal lives. To what extent is it optimal? Colleagues engage in that discussion. We'll start with that. Tell me this. How often do you think we should go there? Well, I think we should go there now a whole lot more as leaders than we normally would, because this is not normal times. And there are such major differences in the impacts that this is having on people. And, and I guess I start with a very pragmatic point of view, right, which is you want to try and get the best out of your people right now. Right. That's part of your role as a leader is to mobilize and focus and to sustain the energy of your people. It's core to what leaders fundamentally do. Under normal circumstances, we create this kind of reasonable division between work and life. And we tend not to dive too deeply into people's lives because in general, we're not responsible as leaders in a business for those lives. And you know people are going through things, right? They've lost a spouse, they've lost a child, they're going through financial difficulty. And depending on the leader you are, you may open that selectively for certain people. If you see someone who is a real high performer, Pete, you know, here's Pete. Pete's a real high performer, but something's not right, right? His, his performance has dropped off pretty significantly. He doesn't look like the Pete we know. So maybe we'll peel open that box a little bit and, and, and maybe we'll say, you know, look, we, we're going to give you a little time to get through this divorce, this situation, right? That's the norm, the way it was before. Almost everybody, when you get down a level or two in organizations, is in some form of challenging situation right now, right? If you think about the people at the very top of organizations, in general, they're not going to lose their jobs. In general, they're financially secure. In general, they're living in safe places. But so many of the people below them in the organization, none of those things are true. And so what would have been an exceptional thing that you might have done, Pete, to open up that box and how, Pete, how are you? I think it's become what you normally need to think about doing, right? Doing those check-ins with your people, seeing where they are, just for the simple reason that you want to try and push that organization forward, continue to get work done. Like the team I talked to, that chief quality officer, knowing how much you can push forward with something without crashing the organization, crashing people. It's just, to me, it's a very different situation. Most leaders are not equipped to open that box up on a fairly broad basis with a lot of people. And in fact, they're often terrified people of doing that. Yeah. Well, well I want to talk about how you open the box well and how you deal with the internal terror. But first, if we could maybe get a preview of the prize to, to be had when you go there. Could you share with us a, a cool story about uh, a leader or a team who made the, the shift and, and saw some cool results? Yeah, so this was, I'll keep with the example I gave you, right? Because I think that what happened, it was fascinating what happened, right? Which is the CQO, the chief quality officer, she said, so how are we doing? And the first person out of the box basically just kind of bared their soul not about their personal challenges, but about some of the challenges that a couple of people working for them were facing. And there was this kind of like silence, kind of this, ah, you know, kind of everyone else sort of, when she finished, there was this kind of like, wow, 
I, I didn't think we were going to go there. I thought it was like a usual check-in where we'd say, oh, yeah, everything's fine. You know, things going great, work, and this, work, and that. Everything's good, right? But it opened the floodgates of a lot of dialogue, right, about the differences in what at least some significant people were facing. This person's, we didn't know they were high risk. We didn't know they had a mother who was living in a, an old folks home in the midst of a fire zone of virus, right? I mean, you understand the things, right? And so there were decisions made about how quickly and in what way to push forward with that transformation that were very different than what would have happened otherwise, Pete. Right? There was a decision, hey, we're not going to kind of push with the pace we thought. We're going to bias ourselves more in the direction of asking for volunteers, for people to step up and do things rather than start to you know, assign roles and responsibilities. And it was just, to me, it was just fascinating, right? How different the response could be if you had people who, as leaders, were tuned into some of the emotional reality of what was going on. All right. Well, that's that's cool. So, so then it sounds like that team had a, a greater appreciation, understanding, camaraderie, bond there, and just didn't put people in terrible burnout type situations by demanding that they, they step on the gas full steam ahead when <laughs> there's not much in the tank available to, to do that. Well, exactly. Right. Exactly. And I think that, you know, if you ask sort of what's the longer term benefit of that, it creates a greater sense of cohesion, right? It makes people feel connected to the organization and not so alone. It's an expression of humanity. We don't expect humanity necessarily in business organizations, but it turns out that there are humans that exist in these places, right? Certainly. So yeah, but to me, that was just kind of fascinating. And then, you know, the other point you were getting at a little bit was, okay, so, wow, I'm gonna open the box. Like, I'm gonna sit with Pete and three or four of his peers on my leadership team, and I'm gonna open the box. And Pete, how are you really doing? And you're going to start with level one of, I'm fine, everything's good, you know, eh, challenging times, but, you know, but going get stuff, stuff gets going, you know, ah, I'm fine, right? No, Pete, how are you really, right? Because I've seen, you know, to my eye, it looks like, you know, there's some challenging things going on for you. And it's like, whoa, right? You know, you're, you actually are asking me what, what is happening for me. And, and, you know, and there may be a little bit of time and you may have to do it a couple of times, but pretty soon there's a real discussion going on. Now, you might ask yourself, what's the benefit of that? And you might ask yourself, that sounds like the work that a coach would do or a therapist would do. We'll open that little box up. I'm neither of those things. I'm a leader. I, I'm not a therapist and I'm not a trained coach. And it kind of is a scary thing for me. And think about it, Pete. Why is it frightening to do this? Well, I guess as I'm putting myself in, in that shoe, well, one, I guess it could, it could just be... Anytime something's new, different, unfamiliar, there is a weirdness or awkwardness associated with like, oh, we've never really talked like this before. So this is, so it's just weird because it's new. So that's one thing. And then I think another thing is, as a leader, I kind of want to be able to provide all of the answers and resources and solutions. <laughs> and when, when you sort of go into a different domain or arena, I may very well have really nothing to offer. And that feels uncomfortable as well. Like, I can't give you what you need. Well, so I think you just nailed the second one, right? I mean, I think there is a, oh, this is different, but it's really that second insight, Pete, that's so crucial, which is I'm used to solving problems. Part of the reason why I'm, I'm a leader is because I'm really good at diagnosing and solving problems. And so my inclination in a situation like this is to try and fix your problem, right? And so if you present a problem to me, I'm going to feel like I'm responsible for solving that problem, and I can't. 
So that's part of it. Part of it, too, is if I open this up, I mean, what happens if Pete really starts to show his suffering? What if all of a sudden I'm confronted with a Pete who's really suffering in front of me, clearly, right? How do I respond to that? So I think it's a combination of those two things. And so the implication is that you need to kind of really shift your mindset a little bit as a leader away from thinking that the way you're going to add value in this situation is by solving the problem towards thinking that just by opening up the conversation, you're creating value, right? Simply giving you a forum, Pete, to talk about what's really going on with you, express your emotions, feel like someone cares to some degree about what's going on, recognizes what's happening. That's what needs to have happen here. But for most leaders, you nail that the terror is, I'm going to be confronted with a problem that I don't know how to solve. And by the way, that when you're trained as a coach, one of the most important things I think you learn is that you're not there as a consultant. You're not there as an advisor. You're not there to provide answers or solutions. You're there to help facilitate a process, right? A process of discovery, a process of learning, a process of connectivity. But there's lots of leaders who don't have never really been trained and perhaps think that they can't do that, right? Or they worry a lot of, you know, I, I talked to someone recently about this and they said, it's like, if I open this up, I don't know if I'm going to be able to close it. I don't know where this is going to take me. I don't know if I'm going to be able to manage what flows out of that box at me. And I think, again, the, the advice I give to people is, first of all, you don't have to be a trained coach to, to deal with this, right? But you do need to adopt a different mindset. And that's a mindset of curiosity. It's a mindset of inquiry. It's not a mindset of, let's frame your problem and solve it. And you need to accept that you may not accomplish much in terms of solving the problem in the moment, right? But that even by showing that degree of humanity, even by allowing that person, allowing you, Pete, to begin to express yourself to some degree about what you're really up against, you're creating what psychologists would call a secure base, right? A place that this person can anchor themselves. And in times like this, the role of the leader in providing a secure base for their people, it's essential. And I want you, you can imagine too, what happens if you've got leaders who don't create secure bases for their people in times like this. But by the way, this is another part of the conversation. So I actually wrote an article after that, listening in on this team meeting, right? I was just so fascinated by the dialogue. And there was another leader who said, basically, we have to show them, them being our people, that we have the backbone and strength to lead them through this, but the heart that lets them connect and know we care. And to me, that was just such a brilliant articulation of the tension that you feel as a leader at moments like this, right? Because I can't just go all soft and gushy on you, like, oh, poor Pete, that's terrible. You know, let me, let me hold you, Pete. There are limits, obviously, right? To be a secure base for you in a moment like that, you have to feel like you can trust me that I'm gonna lead you and the organization in, towards promising directions, that I've got the emotional capacity to deal with what's happening, but you also wanna feel like there's some connectivity, right? And this is a way to begin to create that kind of connectivity. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And so I'd love to get a little bit more of the, the verbiage or not that it's a script, but uh, I imagine there are often some key words, phrases, expectation setting, follow-up, you know, bits of dialogue that, that come up again and again. So one example you shared was, you know, how are you doing really? Any other things that are... What's going on for you? 
what's on your mind and and not accept the first answer necessarily okay right yes i mean you saw what i did a little bit in that interaction right yeah i hear that things are basically okay on the work front but it feels like there's more going on for you and then the person on the other side of the table you in this case has a choice right they can say no no everything's really fine and, and at that point you've done the work you need to do as a leader, right? You're not there to try and force people into revelation. That's not your job. Your job is to create a safe space within which that person can share things to the degree they feel comfortable doing so. But the key is not to necessarily accept the surface answer, but to maybe open that box up a little bit more. And I mean, there's other things you can do. You can share a little bit about what's going on with you, right? You know, social psychologists, there's lots of good studies that have been done on what's called the reciprocity dynamic, right? I do a favor for you, you, you know, you feel obligated to do one for me. It works in a funny kind of way with self-revelation, Pete, which is if I engage in a little bit of self-revelation, you can feel like it's okay. Now, I'm not going to say my life is a mess, Pete. I can't begin to tell you how bad things are, you know? That's not what I'm saying, right? But you could give an example of someone, right? My brother-in-law has just lost his job. It's really challenging right now. You know, and the key here is to be willing to demonstrate a little bit of vulnerability yourself in the name of creating that secure space again within which that dialogue can begin to take place. Certainly. Well, well let's say that we, we do go there. We open it up and some, I guess, the fears are realized. Yep. Some big problems have emerged that uh, you can't do much about. Let's say, oh, my, you know what? Just like the, let's just say, hey, my marriage has been kind of tense and, and rocky before the crisis. And then when you add all these extra obligations and difficulties and challenges, now it just seems like we are really at the breaking point. So I, I'm real, first of all, I'm really sorry to hear that because it's coming at a really tough time for you. And the second thing is, are there ways that you can get support? that might help you through this? Who are you able to talk to about this? Are there resources that you can start to bring to bear? You can begin to ask questions that, that are about creating a context within which perhaps they begin to see alternative ways of looking at the situation. Is there another way to look at what's going on? Are there alternative perspectives you might explore about what's happening here? And again, there's no rocket science here. It may be that you help someone just get a little bit different of a view. It may be you help someone think, hey, wait a minute, there is someone maybe that we could talk to about this. There may be, you know, uh, someone in the family system that can help us think about this a little bit. You might ask, have you talked to each other about it? Do you feel like you're communicating well about it? And again, none of this is about you solving the problem, Pete. It's about you enabling a thinking process to go on and a feeling process to go on that may take people in a potentially you know, productive way. And by the way, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to go too far down this road necessarily, right? And it may be a few different conversations that lead to this. Or they may just walk away feeling like, hey, at least someone was listening. Does this make sense? I've got, I've got you. Thank you. Yes, that is, that is good. And just to reassure listeners, Katie and I are doing well. That was an invented example. Not to worry. No, but you say you're doing well, Pete. Do you feel like everything's going well? I'm, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. We're gonna, I'm not going to do this. Well, uh, no, I was going to say, well, we could do it. I think demonstrations are valuable. I talked to Marsha Reynolds, who is a, a great coach <laughs> on the show. We, we went into this a little bit, but I do. Like, I, I feel like I have less, I think capacity is a good word in terms of I'm a bit less zesty 
energized, fired up. You know, I have a harder time doing a, a 10 hour work day, 10 hours of real work um, than I used to. And, and so a lot of times things just seem too hard, like like little things like, oh, I should um, clean up this office a bit. It's like, oh, that just sounds so hard. <laughs> you, you know, I should go through that pile of mail there. It's like, oh, geez, that's too much. So there, there's been some of that in this midst of, you know, feeling kind of, you know, I'm an extrovert. I, I like to see my people and have some adventures and two plus months of, of deprivation on that front uh, in church, you know, uh, miss that. Uh, you know, they they sort of they wear on you. So I'm feeling less zesty and less capable of cranking out, you know, great work hour after hour, you know, but I, I do like that I've gotten pretty good at, at prioritizing. It's like, this is the, the stuff that really, 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 really matters. And I'm kind of managing to be consistent in executing those things. Yeah, so there'd be a few different directions we could go, right? And I, I'm not, by the way, we're kind of a little past the leader stuff and into the coach stuff now, and that's okay, right? You know, you, you could have a conversation that revolves around a little bit of what you just did, which was the sort of the good and the, and the not so good, and try to see that there are different perspectives, right, about what's happening, that it's certainly not all bad, right? I certainly don't feel like everything that's happened is bad. There's some been real positives, right? So how do we sort of explore that a little bit? I'd be asking you whether there are things that are you're doing that are consistent with your values, right? And do you feel like you're creating value now with what you're doing? And I can tell you do, right? Right, yeah. For sure, right? I'd be talking to you a little bit about your energy probably, right? Which is sort of what you're describing as a situation within which the normal things that energize you, especially as an extrovert, may not be as present for you. There's some different ways to deal with that, right? One is to accept, okay, I'm going to have a little less energy right now. I'm not going to beat myself up about the fact that I didn't deal with that little pile of stuff today. Or there could be a discussion about are there ways, alternative ways of replenishing your energy? Maybe even a discussion about how in tune are you with your energy level. Now, we're, we're, we're sort of past what I would expect a typical leader to do, right, in a situation like this. What I would expect a leader to do in a situation like this is at least open up a discussion, create a space within which some conversation can happen, demonstrate that secure base. You, you are a secure base for this person to some degree. And maybe you can offer them some ways of thinking about things in somewhat different ways or seeking out other sources of support, right? I think as a leader, you can't, you can't go beyond that or into the realm of coaches and perhaps even, even therapists. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Thank you. And that paints a nice picture. I want to address the, the fear or concern that, uh Oh, if I open this box, maybe I could never bring it back. Right. Let's imagine the worst case happens. You know, I say to you, Pete, how are you doing? And then I say, no, I mean, you seem, there's some things you seem to be struggling and you just break down completely in front of me, which can happen. It's not a male, female thing. It could be that you're under so much pressure and so much stress that at that particular moment, it all comes crashing in on you and you break down in front of me. I mean, I can't imagine anything that's a whole lot harder than that, right? To see someone kind of just crashing. Full on crying. Yeah. What do you do in a moment like that? You, you wait, you sit with the person, you be present with them, you give them the space to recover, you engage them in the way that you can tell they're willing to be engaged with, right? I, I think the bottom line, Pete, is that there's kind of an overblown fear here, that if, if I'm in the presence of such powerful emotion, I'm not going to be able to deal with it. But the reality, I don't think, is that. 
Right. Yeah. I, I buy it. I'm with you. And I guess I, I imagine that it's the overblown fear. It, it's not going to continue forever. I, I guess that maybe the, the fear is that it's sort of like, if you're going on for two hours, like, how can I, I don't say it was like, well, we're done now. <laughs> how do we bring it to a close? Pull yourself together, Pete. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the start, the, the patent solution, right? The, the general patent solution comes in. Look, that's not going to happen. It just isn't. And if, if it does, then you're dealing with someone who probably needs some real therapeutic support because they're depressed. And it's probably better that you know that, honestly, right? And you can suggest that maybe they need to do it. You, you also need to deal with the, the next day phenomenon too, right? Which is they come to work the next day and they're kind of embarrassed by what they shared. And you've kind of got to be thoughtful about making sure that they understand that whatever was revealed it was okay. You haven't lost respect for them. They're still a valued member of the team. Because I think there can be, you know, I've seen this happen. I'm sure you have too. It's kind of, you do something, you make a revelation and then you go back and you kind of go, oh my God, I can't believe I shared that with Michael, right? What must he think of me, you know? And so you've got to be aware of the resonances, right? The, the waves that kind of blow out of something like this. Gotcha. But again, there's nothing rocket science here, Pete. It's just kind of distilled humanity. But we're not used to as leaders necessarily playing that, that role. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael. So much good stuff. Tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. No, I think that's the, the big point. I mean, I think the other thing that I'm finding interesting these days is how organizations are kind of organizing to thrive as we come out of this. So that's been another stream of work I've been doing because, you know, the tendency at times like this is to really focus on the crisis, focus on trying to deal with the financials, trying to retrench. You get into survival mode. But I see some organizations that even though they're in the midst of that, you've already got leadership that's beginning to think about what life after that's going to look like. I, I'm working with a big healthcare system right now. And it's been pretty fascinating because they've been very badly hit, as you can imagine, by what's happened. You know, healthcare systems are taking a double blow, right? On one hand, they are the front line of what's going on with COVID-19. And so they've got frontline caregivers that, as you can imagine, are going through really tough stuff. They're mobilizing to try and deal with this crisis. They're trying to find the equipment. They're doing all the stuff that they're doing. And on the other hand, their largest sources of revenue are being demolished because people aren't coming for office visits, although we're doing better with virtual stuff. They haven't been going for surgeries. And so they're kind of watching their financials just go, right? Now, you can imagine that the response would be, oh my God, we need to focus just on the financials. We need to focus on those caregivers. We need to retrench. But what I found fascinating with this particular organization is the extent to which they have pulled aside some energy, some leadership energy, and devoted that leadership energy to imagining how they are going to reimagine key parts of their business to really propel themselves up the other side of this. And I think that's pretty rare, but it's pretty fascinating how they're doing it. If you think about the value of doing that, right, they will be in so much better a place when they come out the other side than they are right now. And I'll give you an example of something they did. There's lots of little examples, right? So, you know, the crisis breaks, all their offices are closed. All their primary care practices are done. All their elective surgeries are canceled. And there's COVID-19 in the area. This, this is a big healthcare system in the Southeast US. And all of a sudden they're getting deluged by 
calls from people who are saying, you know, I think I might have COVID-19. How do I, what do I do? Well, you know, what can you see me? And so sort of day one, when this happened, when it broke, they got 35,000 calls. No kidding. 35,000 calls. Okay. Now, how do you respond to something like that? One answer is, you know, take the calls. <laughs> you know, you got a lot of people who are very worried, right? But what they did was just fascinating. And that the chief strategy officer's organization is a real visionary. He happened to have some great connections with Microsoft, and they knew they were building these AI chatbots for healthcare. And within two days, they had a functioning screening chatbot that would basically triage people to determine whether or not they really were likely to have COVID-19. And if they did, they would then take them to the next phase, which was a, a virtual care visit. Unfortunately, they built the platform for that. That system in the first month and a half handled more than a million and a half calls. Now, you can say, hey, that's a great reaction to the, you know, the crisis and very innovative. But they then took it one step further. They said, okay, this is really what the future is going to look like from this. So we're going to use this to learn about our customers. We're going to use this to pilot this technology. We're going to lay the foundation to take this in a number of different diagnostic directions, even as we're dealing with this particular issue. And to me, that's what differentiates an organization that's operating in that reimagine mode and not just in that reaction mode. And I personally find that pretty, pretty fascinating. Well, certainly, and it's a lot more fun, as I'm imagining, being in that workplace in terms of it's like, okay, well, hey, we got a capability now to handle a ton of incoming calls that we didn't have before. That's great. We've got a capability to do virtual appointments now, which we didn't have before. Okay. Now, what do we do with these sort of like two new toys that we have to play with in the marketplace to, to really help patients and financially stabilize? Well, but, but I think I would add to that, Pete, think about what it takes from a leadership foresight point of view to devote some of your time and energy in the midst of something like this, when literally all hell is breaking loose to reimagining the future, even while that's happening. Yeah, it takes some fortitude and, and you got to kind Discipline. of- Discipline, my God. Yeah, you want to do this, but you force yourself to go do that. And to me, this is just, I mean, I, you know, as you know, I, I'm fascinated by great leadership, right? And so, and I think that these two examples are examples of ways in which the crisis is driving new types of great leadership, right? Whether it's at the micro level with the coaching and the stuff that we were talking about, or it's at a more macro strategic level when you're seeing people who have the foresight, not just to react, but to reimagine in parallel. You know, we could talk lots more about things that the crisis is accelerating, right, in terms of transformation, ways of working. Well, same healthcare system, but a, another discussion with the HR chief of staff. Before this broke, this is a 70,000 employee healthcare system. They systematically discouraged work from home systematically, right? Because they had a culture that basically had a belief in it that if I couldn't see you <laughs> in the office, you weren't working. And all of a sudden, they've got a quarter of their workforce working from home 100% of the time. That's accelerated the way they will work in the future by five years, more. They're already putting in place new policies. They're rethinking their real estate needs for the future. And again, it's just part of that foresight, that reimagine and don't just react piece that I just think is really so, so fascinating. But we're seeing lots of examples of things where something that could have taken five years or more to happen is happening in the space of months. If you've got leadership that is willing to kind of embrace it, not just react, but engage in that reimagination and actually devote some energy to it. 
Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Maybe not a quote, but I have a mantra. So maybe that's a little bit in the same ballpark as a quote. Every day is a new adventure. And that adventure can be a great adventure, a fun adventure, or it can be a really hard thing you go through. But in these days, you've got to expect change. You've got to expect challenge. You've got to expect that you need to be resilient against those things and indeed embrace them to a degree. And then the, the quote that I'm thinking about, I guess, goes back to the discussions we had about the first 90 days, right? And leadership transitions in the last session we did, the, you know, the work I do there, which is you, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. I believe you shared that on episode 29. Yeah, exactly. That's, that'll take us back. That's a little bit of a time warp for you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So I was trained at the Harvard Business School originally, right, many, many years ago. As part of the doctoral training that we went through, we studied classic studies of human behavior. And there was something called the Hawthorne experiments. Basically, they were early studies that were done of productivity, where they basically took a factory and they tried different things to see if they could make people more productive. And they crunched the data. And in the end, what do you think they discovered? I think, as I recall from the Hawthorne experiments, is like they, they tried to change something like the light. It's like, hey, it's better. And it's like, oh, wait, maybe it's not. And it's, it's sort of like, I think what the finding was, people just liked feeling that you were listening and trying things with them. <laughs> exactly, Peter. Well, that's great that you know that. Not many people know about that study, right? But Oh, well, thank you. The bottom line was that it was the simple act of paying attention to people and making them feel like they were part of something. That was what drove performance. It wasn't the amount of light. So to me, that was a really seminal kind of insight um, that, that came from that particular piece of research. Lovely. And how about a favorite book? I'm very interested in strategic thinking these days. And so I'm going back to some of the original literature that was done about decision making and how people actually make decisions as experts. And so, you know, it's funny you say this, there's a book, I'm going to pull it out from under my computer right now, believe it or not, right? It's almost like I had a prop ready for this, right, called Naturalistic Decision Making. And this is a book that probably no one but me could love, but it's absolutely fascinating, right? Because if you think about it, it's really all about what is the foundation of human expertise? What is it that makes us reasoning, thinking, decision-making creatures? And it's not that we run like computers. It's that there's something about the way our brains work that allows us to do that. Oh, sure. And how about a favorite tool? Something you use to be awesome at your job. I mean, I've used mind mapping, and I found that's a pretty productive way to do things. I'm looking at a tool right now. So, I mean, I, I'm a little bit of advertising, right? I'm in the process of taking my um, first 90 days program at IMD fully virtual with coaching and a bunch of other stuff. And so figuring out how to make virtual sessions really interactive and not just the standard one more Zoom call. There's a tool called Mural. It's a really interesting way to kind of do visualization in real time with different kind of subtools associated with it. And I, I'm going to be experimenting with it. Okay, cool. Because I just think it's a really cool, it's a really cool thing. I mean, I don't know about you, but I get so tired of Zoom. Like, please don't, you know, not one more Zoom call, right? I think there's real challenges in how you continue to motivate teams when you're operating in an environment like this and kind of the, we're way past finding it interesting to do this, right? Oh, right. Like, oh, this is interesting. It's like you're, I can see you. Wow. We're over that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we're so far past that, right? And so how do you continue to sustain 
energy, right? In situations like that, how do you build teams? It's not easy, right? To build teams and sustain teams and sustain culture through this. And so tools like Mural, I think are, are really valuable because they, they introduce a little bit of a creative dimension as well into the, what can be a fairly sterile, you know, set of, set of interactions. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So the easiest way to get to me always is LinkedIn, just on my profile, Michael Watkins. I manage my own messaging, and it's a great way to, to do that. Otherwise, I, you know, I'm a professor at IMD, so if you go to the IMD Business School website, imd.org, I'm there. And then Genesis is my consulting company. But really, if people want to connect with me, um, LinkedIn's probably the best way to do it. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I think it, to, to me, this is so much about... What are we learning about ourselves through the process of living through these times, right? What is it that we're really truly learning about ourselves? And what actually are we going to do differently when we come out the other side? I mean, I, I'm not, a, as you know, a pessimist exactly, Pete, but people talk a lot about the new normal at the end of this. I think it's possible there won't be a new normal at the end of this, right? That the world could be a much more challenging place for a long period of time as we continue beyond this, right? And so, you know, to me, developing the resiliency to manage what is to come is maybe the biggest challenge we're going to we're gonna face. All right. Well, Michael. Cheerful thought to end with, I know, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your, your candor. Like, all right, Michael, a real downer for the end, right? But I actually think it's exciting. I think it's exciting to think about how we adapt how we truly adapt and what we truly learn from all this. Right on. Michael, it's been fascinating hearing your latest insights. Please keep up the great work. All right. Thanks. Great to see you again, Pete. Thanks for having me back. What I liked most about this conversation is that we spent so much time discussing something that you might just sort of very quickly brush past in terms of, oh, maybe I should ask how they're doing. Oh, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Oh, I don't know when I'm busy. Move on. <laughs> that seems to be the way many things get uh, put off, dismissed, and, and just don't happen because there's a bit of discomfort, a bit of hesitation, and uh, plenty of busyness. So it's dismissed. But because we went deep into that fear of, well, I don't want to go there because I, I don't have the answers. I, I don't have the solutions. And I, I don't know. That'd be kind of weird or different. And, and just what a difference it makes and how you can be of value without having the answers or the solutions. That's huge. So I hope you take it to heart and you are all the more encouraged to ask those questions and to go there and to enrich teams in your wake. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep581. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest. Bruce Tolgan is also making his second appearance on the show. And Bruce is discussing the art of being indispensable at work. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, Check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. 
If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.